0: Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. We are here, we, I'm sorry, I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are here with Kidge Johnson, the author of The Privilege of the Happy Ending, the story we'll be talking about today, which appeared in Quark's World in August. Kidge? Hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. So in a previous incarnation or episode of the podcast, we we sort of went through the story in the context. Also, we talked about uh, Daryl Gregory's uh, nine last days on planet earth. And we we're curious about both of these as apocalypse stories and they unfold yes. at very different paces in very different ways, but that's sort of the core of this sort of life changing world changing events.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right. And Kitch, if you don't mind me, me just starting at what point are you thinking to yourself Belina is a character in Ozma and Oz and she's a talking chicken and chickens are descended <laughs> from dinosaurs. And I bet Del- Belina could single-handedly take on a horde of velociraptors that are her dinosaur ancestors. At what point does all that come together
1: <laughs> for you? Well, I came at it from another direction, which is that I had, um, I'm a big fan of, um, uh, Chaucer's, the nuns, uh, priest's tale, um, Mm. which is the story of the chicken Chanticleer, um, Mm. and his, uh, wife, uh, Pertolote, who had, he has a prophetic dream and the two of them kind of snark at each other. Um, the prophetic dream turns out to be about him being snatched by a fox. And then as per that classic Aesop tale, um, he gets away by saying, you know, the fox uh, the, gets the fox to speak something and then he gets away. And I wrote a, an epic poem sequel to that where I hypothesized that Pertolota was the smart one and that <laughs> she has a hen friend named Blanche. So I was, I've always thought a lot of chickens because chickens are amazing. <laughs> and in the course of researching this, it turned out chickens are enormously interesting. But that's where it came from, or at least that part of it. It wasn't it wasn't the chicken from Ozma, it was the chicken from Chaucer. When you said that, however, the story is very driven by Wizard of Oz and the Oz stories. So it's funny that I never made that connection until you said that. This is brilliant. <laughs> this
2: is brilliant. You know, everybody. Well, it's funny because we we started
1: talking chicken story. Let's just be honest here. So the <laughs> fact that three of us have done it, <laughs> <laughs> and that's funny because Karen,
0: Karen, and I came. We we figured out the Chaucer angle, but from a different angle,
2: completely. Because oh, we were trying to we were trying to figure out how to pronounce wasturas.
1: Oh, yeah, and I, yeah.
2: I basically fell back on Chaucer's general prologue yes, <laughs> and decided yes. that it rhymed of Shuras. So, uh, so that was how <laughs> that went.
1: Yeah, and and uh, Wasturis is actually from, a, we, <laughs> there's an actual poem that the title translated is Winner and Waster. Right. Yes. We saw um, that. um,
2: We were like, this is way cool. Sorry. Yeah. We were super geeking
1: out about that. (laughs) Like all of these medieval references in the story, although it's not really, and it, and it's got a year stamp on it. I know what year the story is set in. Mm. Um, it's 1287 about, but actually Chaucer turns up nowhere in it. Right. Mm.
2: Now, um, there is, however, another reference which I made. I wasn't necessarily thinking that you were looking at it directly, but the, the parallel to me was, was kind of cool. And I was thinking about I Am Legend.
1: Um, oh, yeah. Where... <laughs> pa- traveling through an apocalyptic wasteland with, the, with an animal. Actually, no, not even that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: more, more the sense that, you know, you have this transformation of the, of the human race into something else, which yeah. the last survivor thinks of as a monster yeah who is the monster um, that's true exactly so so it was it was like that where you know blanche is the one who has evolved she's she's gone and got to another level and then that that bit especially in the end of the story where she where you were like you know who's the monster you know it depends on who's telling the story and how they call her waster you didn't say Wastura, but you said they call, they called they called her waster among the names and um in, in the last dwindling creatures um that still managed to tell stories about what she'd done and i was like wow that is incredible so yeah that was that was actually the other connection i saw but if you were not thinking about that either then in some Mm -hmm. ways i think that's even cooler because it speaks of of speaking of um finding a foundational thematic as opposed to you know necessarily talking to to the story itself at a at a um you know the sort of direct level
1: Right. At the, the best stories are stories that the author, no matter how much she knows about what's going on, Mm -hmm. she still doesn't know everything because she's tapping into something big, bigger than she is, bigger than the story. I hadn't, when I would think about this, one of the things I would think about is that this, I'm really interested in apocalyptic stories, but I'm not interested in any of the contemporary ones because we've lived through apocalypse so many times. (laughs) Um, My college degree, was a history degree and it was mostly focused on sub-Roman and Anglo-Saxon England. And mm. uh, so right after the Romans left and the Romans left, you know, and of course stories vary and some of this is somewhat romanticized because there were a l- lot of people romanticizing as the Romans withdrew and we get Arthur and all this sort of melodramatic stuff going on in that period. But th- that was a time, the fifth century was a time that everybody thought, these are the latter days people. We don't know how we're mm-hmm. going to get through. All of the people who know how to run everything are gone. We're just, we're just screwed. And mm-hmm. the despair and the sense that, you know, we're not going to make it out of this alive. That has happened so many times in history. And mm-hmm. I was writing this story, you know, shortly after the last election, last but one election. And I was writing this as I was learning about what was happening with uh, Syria. And I was thinking, you know, we have been here before. It's easy to forget and it's easy to despair. But as a species, we have been here before. Mm. And I, I love
2: that because um, you did have that that hark back to the superior technology of the Romans so that mm. you could recognize that this was a society that, wasn't caught up in a myth of progress at all. It was. It, it was very much aware that there had been some sort of like golden age in the past, as it were.
1: and right, that's um, the myth they they believed in. The pre-industrial yeah. myth is the myth of the golden age. Mm-hmm. So, tell, tell us a
2: little more about about the the um you know the connection to like what's happening in Assyria and so forth. That sounds that that sounds very interesting.
1: As I was find as I was reading about. Syria and about the Syrian refugees, I was reading it with the same sort of, oh, that sucks casualness that I was mm-hmm. reading all the other world news. But um, an artist I know, uh, Jackie Morris, posted online about uh, a project called, I think, the 3000 Chairs. Um, the 3000 mm-hmm. Chairs were artists who were each painting or drawing or creating a chair for one of the 3000 Uh, orphans, the the 3,000 children that went missing in France. Mm. The idea of that really, it was heartbreaking to read about. And the chairs were heartbreaking, because some were painted with little teddy bears, and some had little, you know, toys with them, and some were painted under rainbows. So it was like all of these people, all these artists reaching out and saying, how are we supposed to help? how How can we help here? And that got me thinking about um, because I've been thinking more and more lately about what are the, what are the imperative, imperatives to authors to mm. be relevant? You know, mm. uh, there is, there is a great, I, I think there's a great dignity and a great honor to creating escapist fiction. Um, but I think there's also great dignity and honor to engaging directly. And so this story was me saying, what must it be like? To be six, traversing an unfamiliar landscape. And I found I couldn't do it without Blanche because mm. I could not, I could not bear to set Ada loose without somebody, some mm. sensible person. Mm-hmm. Because a six year old is just not, there's, there's no story that ends happily that starts with the six year old orphan alone. You know, they're just, they're dark. I mean, Oz works because they all get away to Oz, but Oz is not a real place. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Sorry to spoil it, everybody. No, (laughs) this elevates it.
2: This makes it more amazing because we, I, the question you just said about, um, well, you say the relevance of, of what authors do. Um, I think of it almost as what's the purpose because, when when the world gets a bit dire, sometimes you do look at what you're doing as a career and say, um, you know, I'm not necessarily saving lives. I'm not necessarily, um, you know, fighting the power in ways that are very dramatic and obvious is what I do important. But empathy is our job, isn't it? I'm um, um, a- opening the window, opening the eyes of people to, to what is happening and putting it in a form that really presses a fingerprint on the heart. Right. So, um, so this, this is, this is actually makes the story even dearer to me to tell the truth.
0: Oh,
1: that's nice. I think that the purpose of, if you had asked me 10 years ago, what the purpose of art was, I would say there's something wrong with you. If you think art has <laughs> to have a purpose, you know, oh. why, why does everything <laughs> have to have meaning and significance? But I think that everything does. It's just a matter that not every, there's so many different ways to mean and so many mm-hmm. different things that meaning can do for us. And I do strongly believe escapism is a valid, you know, is a valid art form. Um, but, mm-hmm. I, but I find that I can't just write escapist literature. I can't, mm-hmm. I have to kind of go back and forth between something that is comforting and then something that's not.
2: Well, Blanche was actually hugely comforting to me because Mm -hmm. although I
1: didn't quite see
2: her as a kind of guardian angel with complete superpowers to make sure that nothing happened to her (laughs) charge, there was still this sense of oh, thank God somebody's looking out for her. Right. And um, and I mean, you did balance it because you did kind of continue to warn us as as a sort of a you know narrator commentary. You did kind of warn us at every step how many dangers still lurked for not just just for the not just for a protagonist but for every so-called minor character and as an author who has always been very much um you know in the corner of the minor character you know deserving of full expression and and full life even if that life is not all shown on on stage um that also touched me um because you know you do have people who just sort of like cross your tail for about five scenes and then their job is done they disappear and to me, I'm like, no, you kind of have to show the reader that they are as important and they have their own fates and they have their own path that is, you know, it may intersect with yours, but it doesn't exist solely to prop up yours. Right. Um, so I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it.
1: That's exactly what I what I think and what I was thinking while I was writing this. Um, so you're spot on. It's Really bothered me, bothers me when I read stories or, or games or movies or pretty much anything. And I'm as fond of, you know, a slaughter fest as the next person, but Mm -hmm. something sort of unsettling about the fact that uh, we watch minor characters die because that's what everybody who is not our personal families in the real world, the world is full of minor characters. And if I can just blithely watch You know, an entire city blown up for purposes of my Mm -hmm. entertainment in a Mm -hmm. movie, you know, that's that's conditioning me to accept that maybe if another city blows up in the real world, it's not Mm -hmm. any more important than the fictional city. And I know it's not quite that simple, but I do think that that minor characters, just like every other person that I don't know in this world, have a legitimacy and every one of them has a story. I've always thought that. And so this was an attempt to say, you know, everybody has a story. And it's not, not simple. Like the, mm-hmm. the dead squirrel, you know, who like killed a kitten. That's the most unsympathetic act of the for somebody mm-hmm. who everybody was being told by me is a sympathetic character until that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, but he's, but he, when he killed that kitten, he's still a person. He's still who he is.
0: You know, I, it, it's something I struggle with because my oldest son is is close to eight his age. He, he's uh, recently seven, and um, and of course, you know the the kids are huge into Star Wars. And did did you know that the Little Golden Book series actually has made kids' books versions of all the Star Wars movies? No, Seriously? I had no idea. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they've seen oh, the unsettling. movies, and then they get. Then we've we picked up for them the little Golden Books version, and and that's actually helped them start to learn the different, you know, like how how stories get adapted in different mediums. But anyway, but it also really reframes the Star Wars as a modern day fairy tale, a fairy tale for our time. Trying to explain to him the concept that when Alderon is blown up, yeah, bill- yeah. billions of people with a B. You know, have just died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, it, it's so, it's almost offhand. Well, it's all off stage, right? It's okay. done with a wave of, literally a wave of the hand. Yeah, that, that idea of the body count of our most popular myths mm-hmm. as shown in, in movies is really, really disturbing to me.
1: And <laughs> we well, do it in stories, in fiction, written fiction as well. You know, um, there's not, you know, an adventure novel that isn't packed with people dying um, Mm -hmm. and dying for effect, you know, they're dying because the author wants them to die, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not because even sometimes the story wants it, wants them to die. It's because the author says, I need a big whammo thing for my second leg. And sure, why don't I just Mm -hmm. kill all these people? And I mean, I do this too, but, but I think it's important that i be aware of when I do it and how I do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, combining the whole question of death and minor characters and, you know, the Golden Age, I also found it really powerful that in a story about the vulnerable in the midst of an an apocalypse, so in a way they're almost handling two kinds of apocalypse. a sort of a a, a slow, everyday one,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and then the dramatic, you know creatures tearing across the land, eating everything in their path one. So it's, it's, it's a marvelous balancing act that they're going through. But then you hark back to the owner of the Roman villa who was, right. you know, comfortable, uh, surrounded by a better technology, connected to an empire, and you gave him cancer. As if to say, you know, nope, you too, you too. Yeah. You're not immune. And, and there was something about that Because, you know, the other, the other story that we were looking at, Dal Gregory's story, was also a story that contained a character who was an important character who had cancer. And even though at that point they were ahead of our, our present, you know, alternate future, but still ahead, there wasn't any promise of a, of a cure. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember thinking to myself that, that actually, helps the story as well where you're where you're just sort of like saying you know this is not just about showcasing the vulnerable this is also just to underline how we are all vulnerable in yeah. in different ways and at different stages so yeah, part, so yeah.
1: yeah and part of the emphasis on all the main, minor characters is that as well because i'm not mm-hmm. a six-year-old girl anymore it's been a while <laughs> I, just, and I don't have a talking chicken um, mm-hmm. but, uh, there's so many ways that, you know, people lose that people, you know, they lose the things that matter. There's so many ways people die or don't quite die. You know, most of the people in the story are actually kind of failing at surviving the apocalypse. They're mm-hmm. hunkered down and getting through. And, you know, after August or after October, when the last of the wastorus is gone, they'll wake up and they'll, they'll be able to put a life some kind of life back together. By three years from now, this will be three years in their past. Mm -hmm. Um, But right now, they are succeeding or failing in the moment, every hour of the day that they are going through this. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So when it comes especially to the places where you address the reader directly, that's something you've done in a number of stories o- over time and i'm thinking back to especially the the number of techniques that were used in in a story like story kit um yeah. <laughs> you know which also goes back to a very you know an an ancient literature and then you know sort of viscerally brings it into a way that a modern reader will just get you know a, a bit of a gun, gut punch by um when you're all the meta commentary uh one one of the ones I love is is that first runner who's bringing the news, and you say <laughs> you know his name is is it hard dirt
1: hard forget yeah yeah,
0: yeah his his name is hard dirt, which may not matter to you, but it matters to him yes <laughs> um but that you you're you're talking very specifically to the reader when you're using that particular technique what what are what's going through your mind
1: and I've been—you're right. I've been using a a fair amount lately. It's a—it's an old tradition, because even things like—I mean, I reread *Wind in the Willows* a million times when I was working <laughs> on *Riverbank*. Graham does it; he addresses mm. the reader directly. Yes. In fact, mm-hmm. many books address the reader directly, but they—but they just do it once, or they do it twice. Reader, I married him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we see it again and again. So it's a—a a very old and a tradition that never needed to be explained away. But I found that using it, the things I gain from it are the ability to shake the reader up because, Mm -hmm. um, anytime I address the reader, I lose some readers, but I also am by breaking the fourth wall. I'm, I'm estranging them from the the passive, uh, reception of the story
0: Mm -hmm. Um, because
1: now they have to say, and, and the most, the most resistant thing they'll say is not me. I'm not feeling that if I say you're feeling this and that's Mm -hmm. fair. But most of the time what's happening is they're saying, Oh, okay. Now I have to read in a different way instead Mm -hmm. of in an immersive way. I now have to read in an estranged way by being addressed like this. So, so in this story, actually it went through a lot of iterations. Um, and kudos to Jonathan Strahan, even if he didn't buy it in the end. Because um, originally I was trying to do way too many things with the invasive authorial voice. I was trying to sort of engage with the Fred Pohl story, Day Million, mm-hmm. where, because it's got this incredible almost final line where essentially he's, he's talking about the far future and he's having to interpret every single word in his story. And by the very end, he says, you know, I know this all sounds really strange and depraved to you. But how do you imagine you look, you know, <laughs> um, you know, how would you look to Attila the Hun? How would you look to the people of a thousand years ago? And so mm-hmm. pa- originally the story I was doing, trying to do two things, which is engage with the idea of how people, you think you've changed so much, but you, you haven't, or you think you've changed so much and you have, what makes you think you understand this? But then also this idea that, you know, stories are packed with real people, and if you are not, if you are treating them as, you know, playing pieces in a game, then you're missing the point of fiction. Um, mm-hmm. So I ended up after going back and forth with Jonathan about this a million times, I ended up stripping out the day million idea and instead uh, really focusing on the other idea. And um, I feel like I mean, I do feel that this is one way. That we, This is the gift that we as writers have. Ours is a media that, it, that doesn't have the advantage of a big visual. It doesn't have music backing it up. It doesn't have the interaction of the game. But what it mm-hmm. does have is the ability to encapsulate a single vision. And it has the ability to break the wall whenever it likes. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's already, by virtue of reading characters on a screen or characters on a page, it's already asking a lot of the reader. So it can ask more. It's like mm-hmm. writing experimental fiction. You can ask more when you are creating a story that demands more. Period.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I am
1: I am going to engage with what you
2: said and also point out that the technique you're using for me does this thing where I do feel that it, it comes alive in a way where, because i do come from an oral tradition so mm-hmm. i enjoy being addressed directly by the narrator all the time mm-hmm. um and it makes me feel as if i'm not just looking at it on stage but that i'm sitting really close to the stage <laughs> and um yes. and the and the actors are willing to engage with me and one of the things that i absolutely loved about this story is is your use of language because it is it is, there are some stories that you love to read and then there's some stories that you love to read out loud. Yes, yeah. And and when I was like taking little bits to like read out loud for the podcast, I was like, well, Karen can testify to this, how my voice has <laughs> <just> changed. And, <laughs> that's, that's and, and just like, you know, just like became completely um, a different person as I, as I was speaking this thing out. And as I said, as, as an author who comes from an oral tradition, that really really just captured me
0: karen and i have have you know uh, discussed many many stories over th- three or four seasons of, of uh, SF Crossing the Gulf. And this story we both found as we, we did our individual deep dives, you know, sort of reread and, and for detail, that we just pulled out so many poll quotes. Yes. Because they <laughs> were so good. Yes. <laughs> it's like you can't tell the whole story without this quote. And and kids just, just putting it so much better than we could summarize. So we'll just yes. pull the quote. I'll just read it to you. I'll just read it to you. You'll enjoy this.
1: Trust us. Trust exactly. Us. Trust us. Um, yeah. I think that I don't, I've never thought of it quite this way. But I was raised by my dad was a minister, and oh. um, so I sat in church, you know, often bored out of my senses. And mm-hmm. by the time I was sixteen, thinking about boys. Um, <laughs> but I, but uh, my experience was, you know, my dad speaking. And mm-hmm. his voice telling stories, mm-hmm. you know, and the stories were out of the Bible or they were parables. He was a very thoughtful man. And so most of his sermons were very philosophical, but I associate the spoken voice with stories as well. Um, that said, my mother, who was a librarian, never read to us. Um, she said Ooh. she thinks that the reason why Rich and I, uh, my brother and I, uh, became such passionate readers is that in that family, Mom and dad both just read all the time, but they didn't share. Mm. And so we, <laughs> we, we learned how to read uh, just out of defense. But it, when I went to college, I, I got involved in radio and got used to the sound of my own voice, but always only with a script or something. I like reading. I don't like improvising very well. The m- longer I've written, the more I find everything I write comes down to something I used to say in my 20s which was that I started writing at 25 and I always imagined writing stories was the equivalent of this is the moment when all of the business is done and there's the person who leans forward and says, okay, I have something to say and Mm -hmm. everybody's ears perk up and stories have that or can have that gravitas. And that's how I always think when I'm any story I've ever published I have written with that, that moment of leaning forward and saying, sit down, be quiet. I have a story to tell you. And the the notion that everybody's ears and the room tightens and the firelight, you know, focuses Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, the sounds go away. And that's the magic. And when you're doing it in prose on the page, you have to, it's all, it's, it's a very careful act. Because my, my, I feel what you just said, Karen, about, you know, ending up like reading it out loud and your voice changes. That's like the nicest thing anybody said about, here's <laughs> about my writing. Cause that's what I want you to do.
0: I mm-hmm. want you to,
1: I want you to be unable to read it without reading it out loud. That's my highest ideal. And mm-hmm. if your voice slows down because you need to focus on this sentence or on this word, that's awesome.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You just, you're just like tasting the words. It becomes yes, something yes. you're savoring. Yes.
1: I i mm. always think it's one of the nicest compliments I ever get when somebody says, you know, I got towards the end of the book and I just got slower and slower. And slower. <laughs> and like, well, uh-huh. On the one hand, that could mean that I, you know, dropped the ball on the climax, but it also could just mean that you don't want to say goodbye. And thats that's better. Mm. I'll go with that one.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Now, this is maybe not like a huge plot point, but <laughs> I did find it interesting that you, um, gave us a chicken who was past laying age. We've had a yeah. lot of debate about where, um, kind of like older women are in, and, and sort of older in the sense of past childbearing age women are mm-hmm. in, um, in our as, aspects of fiction. And, you know, you, you've basically got the, the, Kind of a co-heroine, really. A menopausal, chicken. Really. Yeah, menopausal <laughs> chicken, you know? Yeah. And and there was a part of me mm-hmm. that kind of really appreciated that because, you know, it's sort of like you don't have to be sort of young or even human to, to be this outstanding chosen one, which is what she is, a chosen one. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> so I was I wondering if that was intentional. <laughs> it was, but you absolutely. almost don't need to. It's just like, no, you know, no. we just roll with it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I prefer just, not having the explanation. I really do just, right. we've got a talking chicken. I've also got velociraptors. I'm good.
2: Yeah,
1: and we own it, <laughs> yes. I mean, I worked out a very careful sort of ecology, you know, for the velociraptors, such that I could hypothetically keep velociraptors in the picture until the 13th century. Um Ooh. But it was, it's
0: No, I got that.
1: I totally right. got that. Yeah, so it was like a really complicated undertaking. But yeah, Blanche is meant to be, you know an older woman an older chicken because uh and i i did this with dream quest developo 2 years ago i was so tired of reading young people's stories <laughs> as if as if you stopped having stories after a certain age yeah. um, mm. as if you're incapable of being anything but uh you know defined by whether you've had children or not after that age you know either you are a grandmother or you're that, that witch slash biddy who has cats, you know, and, <laughs> and I, and I mean, it, I started climbing at 46 and it was that I was not a young woman. I was wrestling with menopause at that point, actually. Uh, but I, but I was K, ke- I was climbing. I was not sitting around knitting. I also mm. knit, but, but I was not just knitting, <laughs> just to clarify. Thank you. Thank you. So it's all lunches, about the balance. <laughs> It is. Yeah, it's all about the balance. And so Blanche was me saying, what is her use? I mean, after she stops having eggs, it is only the kindness of someone else that keeps her from being eaten. But it turns mm-hmm. out that was all for the best. Yeah, you know, it's uh, she she is because she's freed from sort of the procreative cycle. She is like, she is her own chicken. I love saying that mm-hmm. she's her own chicken. people. <laughs> She's her own chicken. She has her own chicken missions, her own chicken mm-hmm. dreams, her own chicken aspirations. You know, it's like she's her own thing, and so she's not she's not driven by the hormones of parenting or driven by the hormones of fertility. She's driven by something different.
2: And yet, and yet, you and yet, honor her experience parenting. because she is parenting Ada, but. It's, it's that voice. It's that actual mother hen voice that becomes the voice that controls the velociraptors.
1: Yes, yes. That's all she is is a, yeah. And they, and she actually talks there a couple of times in the story where, you know, the uh, author says that the narrative voice says, where are her children? You know, mm. uh, flown or dead or gone. I forget what the exact quote is, but you know, she, she also has lost many, but being a chicken, this is the mm-hmm. way it's always been you know, she's mm-hmm. always lost many. Um, so, and she probably doesn't have the same relationship. You know, every animal has a different notion of what parenting looks like. And mm-hmm. so her notion yep. of parenting, well, while chickens do express affection, um, mm-hmm. her notion of parenting is not, you know, our notion of parenting. So yeah, she. but she is, yeah, it is her mother hen. It is the, it is the, woman at the top of her game that stops. Yes. <laughs> the mm-hmm. So yeah, go Blanche.
0: I, just out of curiosity when it comes to the animal body language. So, so obviously oh, yeah. I've, I've got kids who are into dinosaurs because you can't not be into dinosaurs when you're between the ages of three and eight, you know, so we all know that theropods became birds, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, evolutionarily speaking. I, I really enjoyed, uh, the ways that Blanche's voice and also very specifically body language. Oh, yeah. Translated between, you know, her and what you could almost imagine is this sort of, uh, you know, less, not less evolved, but you know, different branch of evolution, but you know, similar related. Was there particular research that you that you did, or was it just sort of, uh, uh, you know, it, oh, the, Karen, the zeitgeist? You know <laughs> I, I I figured <laughs> you know, there was particular of there's research.
1: there's a lot of research. Um, <laughs> I was I just so guessing. So many books about chickens and more. I read. <laughs> um, I read all of these things. It turns out that if you get into like agriculture, chickens are kind of like a really interesting topic to people and. I found out a lot of things that I wasn't able to use in this directly. Like, for instance, did you know that chickens have more than 25 different vocalizations? And uh, based on things like who they're talking to, who else is present, um, chickens will do a thing where if there's a hawk in the sky, um, if there's a rooster and hens, the rooster will give an alert. There's a specific sound they use for uh, overflying predators. And that that rooster will give that sound and the hen and all the chicks will run and hide. However, if that rooster is there with nothing but other roosters, he will not give it. He will just, <laughs> so, he will sidle into the shadow somewhere and he will just <laughs> hang out waiting to see what happens next. So, I mean, they're, they're actually remarkably complicated and they have these, and they lie. They, um, uh, I also, I mean, many of these are just, that stuff was from, what would you call it, like actual scientific papers. But anecdotally, I know a story of a, a chicken that uh, died of grief, that she had oh. a f- best friend, you know, sweetheart, chicken friend. And when the chicken friend died, she uh, she had seen the, the chicken's body taken away through a fence, and she walked to that fence, and she stayed there and starved to death, oh, waiting no. for her. Yeah. I mean, it's like they're not. We don't know what that means because we are not inside oh, right. the chicken's head, but mm-hmm. we do know that they are feeling things, you know, that there mm-hmm. are things going on that, that are outside of our ken. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of research things. And I will say also Alice Walker had written this fantastic book about chickens, a memoir about keeping chickens, which I found really enjoyable, but there were a lot of, I had a lot of books about chickens at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of I figured. I even tell you her breed. I don't remember the name <laughs> for it, but, that, but it was an actual 12th century breed.
0: Ooh, okay, cool. And and I do have to say, I just, I, I, a few weeks ago, I listened to a, a really good podcast on um, animal communication and the idea that... Every every time animal researchers are like, "Hey, animals do this thing that's just like humans," and and then other researchers go, "Ah, well, we're we're redefining what makes humans unique." Exactly.
1: That is, I mean, that's yeah. a preoccupation of my writing, just generally. It's like how. How we just keep moving the bar for what human looks like based on who we want yeah. on one side and who we want on the other oh, side. Oh
2: gosh, that's yes. so
1: true. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's like as, as we find more and more things are, are even by our standards sentient. And as we now have documentation, because YouTube has been a fantastic, because 50 years ago, if I had said to you, I know a chicken that died of grief, you would have said, that's anecdotal evidence. And now I show you the video. Or I know a crow that made tools and used it to do mm-hmm. things. Um, mm. And people say, "Oh, that's just anecdotal. Pics, or it didn't happen." But now we have pics. We have <laughs> <Right. of them. laughs>
0: And now, one thing, as we're we're sort of perhaps starting to to draw this to a close, I, I love the statement at the end that the happy ending depends on when the author chooses to write oh, yeah. the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because you point out you know what happens to Blanche what happens to Blanche anyway what happens to Ada anyway no matter how they died they they're dead by the time we're reading the story
1: yeah yeah it was i had a long a long wrestle with the lo- with the ending of the story um, <laughs> this must have been a hard one to end <laughs> yeah it was because I honestly, I'd gotten to the point where I knew that Blanche was going to come down like the avenging angel and just say, you all need to die. But <laughs> I had to get mm-hmm. the language. It had, to, I had to have her say the exact right thing. And because the, the wastor, the uttermost queen's words were quite complex. What she's saying is go forth, find a new cave, breed, you know, 17 years from now, when your next litter comes up, they will do the same thing. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. so you need not to be here because this is my terrain. Um, but you need to thrive somewhere else. And, uh, and it's a complicated thing she's asking. And so Blanche had to have a very simple way to stop all of it. And that was hard. I mean, it was hard to come Mm -hmm. up with that anyway, but the very, very ending I went through like, now what, I mean, I've, There was actually, there was a much longer ending and I just realized, I just, I ended up instead by removing the entire long ending and saying, if we go past this, things complicate again. (laughs) because Everything after that in the earlier draft of the story was a complication that started to derail us from the point of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, okay, I don't want to get into it. Um, What I want is you just realize that it's on me how I tell you this story and it's on me. Whether you think this is happy or not, um, mm-hmm. you know it's on me to tell you this is a good story. Who's the monster? Who's the savior? Is it you know is Ada okay? It, that's on me as the writer.
0: I mean, I th- I thought it were great.
1: Yeah, because with it when it, I finally did it, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. I mean,
0: because because again, it it in in keeping with the meta commentary of the entire story, where where you're noting to you the reader we've decided that this guy isn't as important as Ada and Blanche, and this other person isn't as important. And even this whole town, you could imagine they learn from their mistakes or that they get destroyed by the the Wastorais the next time around. You know, we decide. And I, I have to admit, again, as I've become more familiar with literature as a reviewer, that idea of choice, that every single thing you're seeing in a story is the result of a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, by the author and to an extent by a collaboration between the author and the reader, but mostly the author. Yeah. <laughs>
1: because I um, can control. If I don't exactly. want to read this story in a certain way, I have a million solutions before you, the reader ever see it, including not showing mm-hmm. it to you. But yeah, right. but, yeah. But, I think that that responsibility is it's really important for us to keep that in mind, because it's so easy for us to cut people slack, writers slack. I mean, it's very easy for us to be hypercritical as well, to be honest. Uh, But it's so easy for us as a writer to say, well, I know the ending didn't really work, but, you know, that's where the story went, you know, or I know he's kind (laughs) of a jerk, but, you know, that's just the way he would have been. You know, it's like, no, he he is the way you want him to be.
0: You know, yes. And if you
1: want him to be different, then y- you have work to do and maybe mm-hmm. a lot of work to do. And sometimes you just double down and say, no, I know he's this guy and I'm not going to change it. And that's, mm-hmm. but to pretend that you're not responsible for the words that you're writing or, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not responsible for how it's received, but you are responsible for the words. And if you're good enough with your words, then it will get harder and harder for people to misinterpret them. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, is something that's probably what I always strive towards, is if I'm sufficiently precise, they will not be able to read it any way but the way I want them to. Mm -hmm. I don't always succeed, but that's the hope.
0: Although sometimes we end up giving more, more weight to L. Frank Baum than to Chaucer.
1: Accidentally. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and, the, and honestly, the reader, the reader's experiences is, is 100% valid, whatever they read. You know, it's just maybe not, but my goal is for them as they read my story for them to translate the movie that I ran, that I created. Mm-hmm. I want them mm-hmm. to see the same movie I saw. Um, yes. n- nobody ever will, but I want to get as close to that as I can. That's my ideal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they find better things. If I do it well enough, they they find the things that I didn't, like the um like the chicken in and, Al and Frank Baum, you know? It's like <laughs> I didn't think of that. But you know what? If anybody asks me after this, I'll be like, uh yeah, maybe I did mean that. What do you think? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny because I literally have read Chaucer in the Middle English and I literally, of course, grew up on, on the Oz stories and and I knew you were pulling from both, but I, I just focused so much more in on Belina.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably because well, Ozma of
0: Oz is one of those chicken. ones that I read to death when I was, I don't know, nine. <laughs>
1: yeah. And and you know, um, Blanche is a practical chicken and the chickens in Chaucer are not practical. They're pretty silly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as we're, we're sort of drawing this particular Conversation to an end Karen was there any other Points that you wanted to bring up Or, or questions No um, I really just want to say Again that
2: I really really Enjoyed this story And I enjoyed it on two levels There are stories I enjoy as a reader And there are stories I enjoy as an author Because I'm looking at the craft and this satisfied in both respects. So I thank you very much for having written this.
1: Oh, well, and thank you so much, too.
0: Right. So, Kids, thanks so much for, for making time. I, I know, mm-hmm. you know, this particular period for you, you've been all over the place. Is there anything that you want people to be aware of that's coming out soon or that you're working on now?
1: You know, I'm, I was supposed to be working on a project all fall, but um, instead I've just been traveling. So I don't really have it. I'm working on a sequel to The Riverbank called The American Tour, but that could be down the road a ways because even after I'm done, the artist will have to do the art. After that, mm-hmm. I don't know. The jury's kind of out right now about well, what the next big project is. Um, actually, could you,
0: could you oh, yeah. even just give us a blurb on The Riverbank?
1: Oh, okay. Riverbank is uh, my sequel, my response to The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham which was a, a children's book with mole and water rat, the toad and everything, mm-hmm. and all these adventures that all these fabulously well-dressed animals are having, <laughs> um, which are quite comical. Um, but there's also a complete absence of female characters. And so I decided I wanted to see what would happen if I put females in. And so I put in a lady mole, who is a novelist, and her dear rabbit companion, who you can read any way you like, but but I know it's a Boston marriage,
2: <laughs> and
1: um, the uh, and I said, what would happen if we put uh, female animals into Graham's world? And the answer was even sillier things. So <laughs> Riverbank was just like this ridiculous, high voice uh, comic adventure with an- well dressed property owning animals, as I say in the story. Um, mm. The American tour then is after. Beryl finally gets into the American market, so coveted by the English author, and she sent on a uh, a lecture tour, as Dickens did and as Oscar Wilde did to the to the Americas. And she ends up again more hijinks ensue. And uh, it's a lot of fun to work on, but it's also quite a lot of work because the research. <laughs> right now, I'm so deep into researching uh, the state of. English photographic techniques in 1913, you would not believe <laughs> Wow! <Whoa. laughs> Turns out there's a lot of poisons and um, things that <laughs> explode. So that makes yeah. it a as far as I'm concerned.
0: That's the wonderful thing about research. It, it is, I'll- isn't it? Okay. Well, thank you to both with any luck. Um, so Kidge, with any luck, we will get a chance to talk to you again sometime in the future when, when things roll around. And Karen, thank you as always. Thank you. Yes. You both.
1: This was absolutely wonderful.
0: So we will be back again in a month or so and we'll figure out what the next thing is we're, that we're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Until then.
2: Bye.